Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible divorce and family law attorney, Aaron Thomas. Hello, Aaron, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Really happy to be here. Today, we're going to be asking the question, should we get a prenup? And for those that don't know, Aaron Thomas has been an attorney for almost 20 years, helping secure favorable settlements and verdicts for clients from all walks of life. He graduated from Harvard Law School in 2002, and ever since 2007, Aaron has practiced family law exclusively in order to help people navigate emotional and difficult disputes over divorce, custody, and child support. He has since covered a variety of cases in family law, and since then, his attention has been trying to prevent the arguments that lead to divorce in the first place. In 2020, he founded Prenups.com, a fair and friendly take on prenuptial and postnuptial agreements. How are you today, Aaron? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? I'm well, and I'm excited. You're like by far one of the more unique guests we've had on the show. We haven't had like a lawyer or an attorney on, so I'm really excited to hear about your perspective because you've been a divorce lawyer for 10 years and I'm imagining you have some interesting stories about the kind of the intense battles that often takes place between two people who have previously loved each other very much. So I'm curious, what are some things that you've seen? Yeah, you're correct. I've certainly seen some some interesting stories. Um, I never say that I've seen it all because every year in in this line of business, I see something that you know I've never seen before. Um, I've seen people who have uh, a, a a hidden spouse in another state. I've seen people you know hide children from one another. And that phrase, it's kind of trite. There's a thin line between love and hate, but there's certainly some truth to that because I've seen people demonize the other person and turn them into the biggest monster, at least in their own mind, that uh, that used to be the person that they said they loved more than anyone else in the world. And so it's uh, it's pretty wild what can happen in people's relationships uh, when things go bad. It is wild. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of affairs, they think of kind of one-off events that might happen like on a work trip or something. But it's interesting when you do look at most affairs, they tend to last on average like a year or two. And indeed, as you mentioned, some people live a totally outside secret life that they keep from their spouse. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I agree with that. It's something that happens over time. And uh, I forget who said it, but someone said that you you covet what you see every day. And so a lot of people, um, you know, it's a workplace romance, but it's not certainly not a one off. It's something that develops over time. And, you know, by the time somebody's caught or it's found out, it's it's developed and progressed so far that it's shocking to the conscience to see what's happened. So you've seen people who have gotten to these places, and I'm wondering what to you are some of the biggest factors that you have found eventually lead people on the path to divorce? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of debate about what's the biggest factor that leads to divorce. And certainly there are some you know, of the obvious things. Um, in my work, I, I see finances, arguments over finances being a, a huge factor infidelity uh, ranks up there. Abuse is certainly something that we see a lot, unfortunately, in our society. Uh, But if you go a level deeper, I think that a lot of these things fall under kind of more general categories, a a breakdown of communication or a lack of respect, kind of the eroding of respect that each spouse has for the other tend to be some of the more underlying factors, I think, that that lead to divorce. 
certainly, you know, communication and transparency are are huge ones that kind of erode over time. It's not kind of the big abuse or an affair that's been discovered, kind of, you, you, you know, those things that you think of as these big blockbuster events. Um, more often, I think it's just the, it's the everyday slowly whittling away of the relationship that leads to people getting divorced. Yeah, I know. And you probably know this, too, that a really big shift happened in marriages and divorce in the late 60s when the idea of no fault divorce came into play. And then people were kind of free to get divorced, not when there was some big crazy event that happened, but just when they feel like they had traveled apart, you know, over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, irreconcilable differences is is what we call it, <laughs> at least here in, in Georgia, where, you know, no fault divorce uh, became more prevalent. And it's interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people point to that and, and blame that for rising divorce rates that, uh, as you correctly identified, you know, kind of occurred over the next couple of decades, particularly the 70s and the 80s, I think is when we saw a peak of those divorces. But a lot of it, you know, a lot of people point to uh, the no-fault divorce as being a big win for women's rights. Um, whereas previously, a woman who was in an abusive relationship had to consider, okay, um, particularly back then, you know, the man was typically the breadwinner and the wife was thinking, okay, how do I get out of this abusive marriage? And facing the prospect of having to go and try to prove that they were being abused, try to approve, you know, the cruel treatment to qualify, just to qualify to get the divorce. And the prospect of not being able to adequately prove that to you know, a judge's satisfaction uh, kept a lot of women in abusive marriages. And the the advent of of no-fault divorces allowed people to go and get a divorce without having to figure, okay, how do I prove that I was cheated on? How do I prove that I've been abused or treated cruelly? But of course, you know, the along with that came uh, kind of the escape hatch for irreconcilable differences. No, it's true that many people do kind of view divorces as a blanketly bad thing while they don't necessarily recognize that actually, well, if you're in a toxic relationship, if you're in an abusive relationship, then that divorce is a good thing. And that indeed, you know, many women were trapped in, in bad marriages and then that no-fault divorce allowed them to break free of them. And in the same vein, when we talk about divorces that aren't necessarily all bad, is that some people do have very amicable, conscious uncoupling when I think of divorce court, I think of like two people absolutely like fighting in order to get the money or get the kids or get the things that they want. But I'm curious if you've had any experiences of positivity of people getting divorced, of people who still had love for each other and were doing kind of a conscious uncoupling where they wanted the best for the other person while recognizing that they weren't the life partners that they thought they were. Yeah, I mean, certainly I mean, there are as many different ways to approach your divorce process as as probably there have been divorces. I mean, everyone who goes through it has their lives their own experience. And yes, I absolutely I have seen kind of what you would call more conscious uncoupling. I don't see them typically as happy events. You know, I am I am an attorney after all, and so most of the people who come to me are coming because they haven't been able to figure it out all on their own. But my office does do a fair number of uncontested divorces where couples have come together and said, okay, let's value each other's roles in our children's lives, for example. Let's, let's go through this process in a way that allows us to continue raising our children um, at least until 18, at least legally under the law, you're required to do that. But but honestly, you're going to be at your children's graduations. You're going to be at their weddings. You're going to want to be at these important events and not have the antagonism and tension between ex-spouses trickle down and and really impact the children. And so certainly there, there are plenty of people who are able to uh, go through this process and and treat each other fairly you know, divide their assets and debts in a way that, that, you know, treats both spouses fairly in that process. 
And I really think it's unfortunate that so many people use the divorce process as a, a proxy to try to prove who was the more virtuous spouse during the marriage itself. Un unfortunately, a lot of people don't go through the uncoupling process consciously, and you know they use it as, as a time to, to either get revenge or try to prove a point. I think that there is a movement towards uh, amicable divorce. There are lots of attorneys who get certified in amicable divorce or create networks where you can do kind of a collaborative divorce, where it's how do we reach our shared goals together rather than how do we win over the other one? And so, you know, that's a trend that even though this is my business, um, I'd love to see that continue and expand. I love that amicable divorce and how people do have that intention to continue to support each other and their goals while also separating. And you mentioned earlier, there are big reasons people get divorced, like infidelity and abuse. And there are also small, more chronic, longer term reasons people get divorced, like breakdowns in communication and a lack of respect. And you also mentioned that finances are a huge factor. And I'd love to ask you more about that, because it is something I know many couples struggle with and how money and who makes the money and how the money is spent can be one of the biggest sources of conflict in relationships. So I'm wondering how to avoid that. Like what, in your opinion, are some good financial strategies that couples can do to manage and talk about their finances in a better way? Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, money is is one of the biggest stressors in marital relationships. And the challenges have gotten bigger for people of our generation than they were for people of our parents' generation. When my parents got married, it was all the way back in the 1960s, the average couple got married at around age 20, age 21. Um, and a couple of that age, they typically didn't have much in the way of assets. Student loan debt was nothing like it was today. Credit cards had, had just kind of come around. So, you know, rarely would a 21-year-old have significant credit card debt. Um, they probably didn't own, you know, much in the way of property at that time, didn't have a 401k. And so a couple that got married back then, um, they were young and they basically were starting their financial lives from scratch. I liken it to somebody starting a business together. You know, you partner together and everything you build is 50-50, is, is you built it from the ground up. And then you compare that or you contrast that with today's average marriage where people are closer to the age of 30 than they are to the age of 20 when they get married. It's not unusual for that person to have, for those spouses to have tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. Uh, not unusual for them to have a 401k, to already have a mortgage on a house, to own a car. You know, whereas a couple back then may have one bank account, the average person getting married today may have four or five bank accounts four or five credit cards. So if a couple getting married in the 60s were, you know, like starting a business together, today's couple getting married, it's like merging two already formed corporations, right? It's so complex. And you just, you would never do that without like really, you would never merge two corporations without sitting down and really hammering out, like, how are we going to do this? In, in a good way. And on top of all the complexity in terms of just assets and debts is you've also got, you know, a decade of living on your own, of, of, you know, kind of being outside of your parents' house and you've built up your own financial habits, good and bad. You know, one spouse may be a spender and the other one's a saver. One spouse may carry a ton of credit card debt, whereas the other one pays it all off, you know, every single month. And so, um, I've got a lot of, you know, strategies that I try to help couples with in terms of joining their finances, you know, and just to, to throw in a plug, I've got a free ebook on my website, prenups.com called seven financial strategies for a rock solid marriage that, I, you know, would, would ask your listeners to go and check out. But just to give you a, a taste, one thing is, you know, our, our parents, it was not uncommon for them to just have one bank account and everything goes into that one bank account and everything's paid from that one bank account. In today's world, I find it's better for there to be a few different bank accounts. You know, one spouse has their separate bank account. The other spouse has their separate bank account. And then you have a joint bank account that is for your truly joint expenses. And it's a good idea, I believe, for couples to sit down and just make a list. What are the, th what are the expenses that we have on a monthly basis 
which of these are truly joint expenses and which are truly separate expenses. So for example, you know, your mortgage or your rent, your utilities, maybe your health insurance and life insurance, groceries for the household or meals you go out and eat together, travel you take together. Those are examples of joint expenses that should be paid from a joint account that both spouses contribute to. And then there are separate expenses. You know, the example I like to give is, you know, my wife is probably more likely to spend money on clothes than I am. I can wear the same pair of jeans forever. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I'm more likely to go and, and, and I, you know, I got to have the new phone every year when it comes out, you know, have in quotation marks, of course. But uh, and, and my wife wouldn't understand that. And I don't understand her expenses. You know, we don't have to agree on those discretionary expenses. But because we have agreed that those types of expenses come for our separate bank accounts, the other party can't argue. It doesn't impact the other spouse. Uh, we don't argue about it because I don't even see those expenses coming out of a bank account. She's got her money to spend on the things that she wants to spend money on. And I've got the same on my side. And the the only expenses that impact each other are the ones that come from the joint bank account, which are the expenses that we agree on. And so I think setting up your bank accounts in the right way, where you both contribute money to a joint bank account, whether the money goes in there and you take an allowance that goes out into your separate bank accounts for your own kind of discretionary spending, or whether the money goes into your separate bank accounts and you contribute say, you know, proportionally with your incomes to the joint expenses, um, setting up your bank accounts in the right way is, is one of the best things that a couple can do for their relationship. Absolutely. I do think it is really helpful, just as you said, to have a joint bank account. So then you don't necessarily get mad at your partner if they come home with a thing that they just bought because, okay, I bought this with my money and my, and my account. And don't worry, there's plenty of money in our joint account. Right, right. And similarly, I like to say that you have a rule where anything that's going to be spent from the joint bank account, even if it is, you know, something for the household or, you know, groceries or that kind of thing that you you have a rule, anything over, you know, 200 bucks or 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, it'll differ depending on your, your income level, but that anything from the joint account over a certain level is discussed between the spouses or between, you know, even if you're just in a relationship and live together that you discuss those things before those kinds of expenses are made. And so it kind of comes back to, you know, what we were talking about plagues of relationships, you know, if it's communication and transparency, you know, the lack of those things can break down relationships, kind of making rules where you, you bake that into your relationship, the communication and the transparency um, has the opposite effect and can help, help build your relationship. Yeah. And earlier when you were talking about how it's true, people are marrying later and later. Marriage is now more of like a capstone of one's first part of life. They get the job, they get a few relationships and then they get married rather than like the cornerstone of their life that happens at the beginning. And I do even remember I had a friend and she was dating a guy for a few weeks before discovering that he was $50,000 in credit card debt. And <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Which is not necessarily like, you know, you don't have to necessarily write him off, but she was like that is just not something I want to get involved with. So indeed, you know, people have been adults for a while and they have, you know, habits and, and, and certain things you want to consider before necessarily marrying them. And when you were talking about the joint bank account, I was thinking how nice that would be in like a perfect world where both income earners are able to support themselves and they have, you know, a few thousand dollars to put into the joint bank account for the partnership. But sometimes there's a primary earner in the relationship and then maybe a person who is not making as much or might not be making anything at all. I'm thinking about a friend friend group I have and like there's a couple and they're both working and they both want to be the stay-at-home person. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, I, I think I should quit my job so I can stay at home. And they're like, I think I should quit my job so I can stay at home. So they kind of get into this, well, who's going to be the breadwinner? Who's going to be the, the stay-at-home so what is your advice for when there is a sort of disparate uh, income between the two partners or one partner wants to make a change that might, you know, result in them making less income? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. This is my opinion. After doing 15 years of seeing every kind of divorce in the book, what I have learned is this. 
two people living in the same household, but in different socioeconomic classes doesn't work. I've seen a relationship where the husband was making 200 grand a year and they agreed that the wife was going to stay home and raise their two children. And the husband gave the wife a quote unquote allowance of $300 a month. And so she had basically nothing. She was basically trapped at home. She couldn't she couldn't even really afford gas money because the, the money was just enough for groceries and for her to cook at home. And meanwhile, he had all of this money in an account. She didn't know what was going on with it. She certainly had no access to it. And so, you know, what I recommend is that, you know, if all of the money, say you've got a situation where the money goes into a joint bank account and then each spouse gets kind of an allowance per month you know, whether it's 500 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month, and that money goes into the separate bank accounts. And it's really going to be best for the relationship in most cases that each spouse still gets a roughly equal amount of discretionary spending money, regardless of the relative incomes. And it's got to be at least a minimum. I mean, you can imagine if one spouse makes 10 grand a month and the other makes three grand a month. And, you know, they've got their joint expenses such that each spouse has to contribute $2,000 to the joint bank account. Well, then the spouse who makes $3,000 a month has a grand left over, whereas the other spouse has eight grand left over. And that's, that's a recipe for resentment. That is going to breed arguments. No question. And so um, I think couples have to realize that, you know, when you enter a marriage, you're entering a financial partnership and you're going to play different roles. And if you value the role that that stay-at-home parent is playing, then that person needs to have a roughly equal share or access to the money that's coming into the household. It's like you're a business and you're both shareholders in, your, in the business. You're both going to get access to, to the same amount of money. And, and I think if, if people can wrap their minds around that concept that you know, you're no longer just individuals, but, but that you're in a financial partnership, that it's easy to kind of you know, stomach that 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 shift of, of resources. And so, you know, for the couple, I've seen other couples say, okay, if we've got, you know, X amount of discretionary spending, then the person who stays home gets 40% of that discretionary spending, whereas the person who's working gets 60% of the discretionary spending. And so that might be the negotiation that happens between your friends is, you know, who's willing to actually take a, a pay cut on their allowance, so to speak, to be the person that stays at home but again, that's that's what it is. It's a, it's a negotiation. I mean, what what is the spouse who's going to be staying home with the kids willing to do or willing to offer to have you know that role in the relationship that they want without creating the resentment with the other spouse who's saying, "Gosh, I'm going to the office and 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 busting my butt every day," and the other person, you know, the other spouse is going to be staying home. Um, there's got to be some kind of you know agreement or trade off. For that to work, in my opinion. Yeah, I really like your advice. I think it's really fantastic. And just to clarify, so you're using your example, you said like one partner makes 10000 a month, the other makes 3000 You recommend having that joint bank account with all your shared expenses and then sort of splitting that like each partner gets, say, 3000 of this discretionary income. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And 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 maybe not all of it goes into discretionary income. You know, maybe um, some of it goes to, you know, other funds. Like I recommend that couples create some shared financial goals together so that they've got something that they're both working towards. So, you know, in my relationship, our big thing is travel. And so we decided early on, okay, we're going to set aside 5% of our annual take-home income for our travel budget. And that way it's something exciting. It's a, it's a shared goal. It's not, you know, it's not a bill to pay, but it's something that as, as our money goes into this joint account, we know that we're working towards something that we that we like together. So with the couple that you mentioned, maybe all of the money goes direct, all the income goes directly into the joint bank account. So it's transparent, everybody sees it and the joint bills get paid. And then maybe, you know, out of what's left, maybe a portion of that goes to the travel fund, maybe a portion of that goes to the, the baby fund or, you know, the house fund for when the baby is born. Um, and then, you know, and then maybe equal amounts or roughly equal amounts go out from the joint bank account into the separate bank accounts so that each spouse still has, you know, control over their own spending money. So 
you've mentioned your wife a few times now <laughs> and your different mm-hmm. spending habits and also your shared goals together. And our topic for today is prenup. So I have to ask, I know you've been married for five years now. Did you two get a prenup before you got married? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100%. Would not have done it without a prenup. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. And I first just want to go over just some strict definitions and explanation about what a prenuptial agreement is. Because I wouldn't be surprised if we have some listeners in other countries who it pop maybe has a different term. For our listeners who don't know or only have heard it, what is a prenup? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you asked me this question. I think a lot of people who have heard of a prenup still have kind of a fuzzy definition as to what it is. So a prenup is is really a written set of rules as to how a couple's finances are going to be handled both during the marriage and in the event of death or divorce. And I, I like to point out that definition because I think a lot of people think that prenups are just what happens if you get divorced and that there's nothing in there about, you know, what happens during the marriage itself. So that's in essence, what a prenup is. It's a set of rules about how your finances and some things that are not strictly financial are going to be ha- are going to be dealt with during and then eventually, if, if necessary, after the marriage. So let's go into the bit of stigma around it or the hesitancy that a lot of couples do have around getting prenups because it does, for a lot of people, I mean, they have to sort of think about this idea of divorce. And obviously they're like, what are you talking about? Like, we're not going to get divorced. We're going to be married and be life partners. And I don't even want to think about this as a possibility. And as a result, people don't necessarily even like the idea of talking about or getting the law and lawyers involved to sign this agreement. So what's your advice on dealing with such hesitancies? I think that, you know, such a great example to compare this to is is insurance, right? Because, you know, you don't want to think about having to get life insurance because you got to think about death. And the same for the same reason, a lot of people don't want to think about prenups because it makes them think about what happens if we get divorced. And so, you know, just personal bit, I'm not a big believer in jinxes. Um, I believe in, you know, kind of, you know, kind of kind of planning. And, and, and I believe that in the same way that someone who purchases life insurance is not all of a sudden going to go out and start living more recklessly and, you know, skydiving, you know, without training, that, you know, someone who gets a prenuptial agreement is, is no more likely to get divorced than somebody who doesn't. And, you know, in a, in a large part, it really is insurance and kind of the best insurance that you could ever buy. Because, you know, a lot of people think that a prenup is just if you've got a ton of money, uh, you know, people hear a prenup and they think, you know, the image that comes to mind is an old man trying to keep his money away from a young gold digging wife. Better for better or worse, that's what a lot of people think of when, when they hear the term I tend to think it's the person with the more money, yeah, trying to make sure they don't lose half of it in the event of a divorce. Exactly. Exactly. But what I found is people who are in most of need of prenups are just regular, ordinary, working class or professional class people who are not extremely wealthy. Um, because a lot of what you're protecting against is the confusion about where each spouse stands financially. And and yes, what would happen if the relationship ended is the average cost of a divorce is 15 grand per spouse. And there's all kinds of uncertainty. So, so you know, you can get a, a prenup for a fraction, for say 10% of the total cost of the average divorce case. And, and when is someone going to be more fair about how their assets would be treated in a divorce. Is it when they're getting married and they love each other and they respect each other? Or is it going to be when the relationship is completely broken down and there's no trust and, and they may even hate each other? I mean, I think that I, it's obviously a you know facetious question. I mean, the, the answer is obvious. It's at the beginning of the marriage. You know, to me, it's, it's you know, one of the most romantic things you can do. Uh, actually, is to is to sign a prenup because you're locking yourself in and saying, no matter what happens, I'm going to be fair. You know, uh, most people who come to me for a prenup are just like, all we want to do is say, whatever we build together, we're going to split 50-50. And it's easier said than done if you get to, you know, the stage of divorce. But 
I think that, you know, the stigma around prenups is really unfortunate because if it were just commonplace, if it were just as standard as you get married, you get a marriage license and you get your prenup, it would save so much stress and strain and unnecessary expenses in relationships, number one, by, you know, taking off the table expensive, you know, the average divorce case takes a year to complete the impact on children of a contentious divorce is just incalculable when compared to uh, an amicable divorce if it happens. But I also believe that, you know, a well-crafted prenup can actually help couples stay married, can actually be a preventer of divorce by taking off the table some of these, you know, mistakes, very, very predictable arguments, predictable mistakes that couples getting married make over and over, like not setting up their bank accounts correctly. And so all expenses are made from a joint bank account and one spouse is watching the other person's spending habits, you know, drain up all their hard earned income rather than set up their bank accounts in a, you know, kind of more intentional and thoughtful way with the help of an advisor like myself who has seen, you know, what kind of mistakes couples make. Or, you know, drafting into their agreement, if somebody does come in with, you know, children from a previous marriage or, you know, a house from a previous marriage and just having couples get clear, okay, if we're moving into this house together and you owned it prior to the marriage, what are my responsibilities going to be? You know, are we going to split the mortgage 50-50, but it's still going to stay in your name? Or, you know, is all the equity that you had at the beginning of marriage going to be yours, but we're going to split everything, you know, from then on? Um, if, if the water heater breaks, you know, what what's my responsibility to help pay for that versus yours? You know, if it's only in your house, if, you know, if the house is only in your name. And there are tried and true principles that we have to help couples who are getting married today work through these different questions in a way that's fair and that's transparent. Um, another thing about prenups that a lot of people don't know is for it to be enforceable, you've got to disclose all of your assets and debts and income to the other spouse. And Zach, you might be shocked to know how many people get married. Um, and unlike your friend who found it out at least early on in the relationship about the 50 grand of credit card debt, some people don't figure that out until they've been married for a few years. And then all of a sudden, a creditor starts calling or even worse, their, their big hefty tax return, tax refund they were expecting gets garnished. And that's when it comes out that, oh, yeah, I've, I've got you know, I've got 20 grand of unpaid IRS debt, or I've got, you know, 30 grand that I owe to the credit card companies or, you know, this car that I defaulted on. And getting all of that out on the table at the beginning is, is so important because, you know, the conversations about money are just so taboo. You know, we're, we're raised in our society to, to it's, it's, it's impolite to talk about your income. It's impolite to ask the other one, you know, about what their financial status is. And because of that, we've got all this shame, you know, maybe you've got more debt than you, you would like to have, or you're not as far along in your, you know, your savings or your retirement um, as you'd like to be. And there's just no comfortable time to have these financial conversations. Well, prenup forces that conversation, get everything out on the table, down in writing, and agree on what your rights and responsibilities are going to be, how you're going to handle your money during the course of the marriage itself. And yes, if something goes wrong, you know, it's good to have a safety plan in there that's not going to cost you a year of your life and tens of thousands of dollars to extract yourself from the situation. So I want to go more into you earlier. You mentioned that prenups are a written set of rules on how couples finances are going to be handled. And then you keep mentioning how basically, you know, when two people come together, an entire two entire financial situations come together at the same time. People come with debt, people come with assets, and then the prenup is on writing those rules. And then later I want to get into the why, and then later I want to get into those principles that you mentioned. But first, let's go into the what. So you do have two people and your prenup is a set of rules that you're writing. So what are just some examples on those rules, those guidelines that you would see in a prenup at the beginning when two people are coming to it together? Sure, sure. So, you know, one one part of the prenup that that I usually recommend that couples look at has to do with who owns what. And if you just get married without a prenup, you know, in pretty much all of the 50 states, what the law is going to say is everything that you own is going to be assumed to be joint until proven otherwise. And so, you know, a common argument that I see couples have near the end of the relationship so all is all the debt, all the things, all the debt, all of the assets. And so, you know, say you've got a 401k and, you know, you, you've got 
200 grand in at the time you get married and you get divorced, you got 400 grand in there. Well, normally the 200 grand that you have coming in should be your property. And then you split what you built during the marriage, right? You should keep the first 200 and split the other 200. The problem with that is people have been married 10, 12, 15 years trying to go back and prove what you had at the time of the marriage, which would normally be your, your separate property and not up for division is, is near impossible. I mean, imagine if you had to go find your, your 401k statement from over a decade ago, you know, how much luck would you have? Or, you know, maybe your bank, you know, maybe you banked at Wachovia, you know, or Washington Mutual and your bank doesn't even exist anymore. And so trying to prove what you had, you know, at the time of the marriage is impossible. And so what I like to recommend to couples is that they set up, you know, that they, you can opt out of the default law, which says everything is lumped together and everything is marital and up for division unless you can prove otherwise and do what's more intuitive for couples, which is how you title something is how it's owned. And that way, if, if you have an account that you want to be your account and this is going to be my play money or this is going to be my investment account, then you title it in your name. And if you want something to be a joint asset, then you title it in both names. And, and that's how you can kind of, you know, protect each other against, you know, if you want to start a business, but you don't want the other person to be at risk, if things go badly, you just title it in your joint, in your separate name. If you want it to be a joint endeavor between you and your spouse, then you put it in joint names. And, and that creates a much more intuitive setup so that everyone knows where they stand at any given time. You know, if, if it's both of our names are on it, then we're both on the hook for it, you know, any expenses, but we both reap the rewards from, you know, any benefits from it rather than what happens in a lot of situations where nobody talks about the money and one spouse is saving for the retirement and the other spouse is just trusting that they're doing the right thing with the money, but there's no visibility and they never really know where they stand. You know, like, do I get to share in that 401k that my spouse is saving in or or do I not? You know, people, the average lay person can't be expected to know, you know, be up on the divorce laws of their state. And so kind of getting clarity on on those kinds of things. But also, you know, in a prenup, I, I like having the rules like I talked about, about, you know, discussing expenditures or um, another thing that I recommend couples do is, uh, you know, in my own prenup, we have a rule where we have to sit down every December and talk about what our retirement contributions are going to be for the upcoming year. So in your prenup, it says you have to have a conversation every December. Yes, we sit down every December and we agree upon what our retirement contributions are going to be for the upcoming year because we have a rule that our, our retirement our retirement accounts are belong to ourselves, but we try to make sure that we're contributing equal amounts so that we both have assets in our own names that you know belong to each of us, but that we're both contributing to them regularly throughout the marriage so that anything ever happened, um, my wife has got sufficient retirement funds in her own name and that I've got some in my own name and that we try to keep them equal throughout the marriage. And what happens is that that also that house meeting that we've got baked into our agreement also becomes the time that we discuss, all right, what's going to be our budget for travel this coming year? Are we going to put money into a health savings account? You know, are we going to put away, you know, money, you know, so that we can, you know, pay for, you know, daycare for our daughter this upcoming year? You know, we kind of bake in this strategy of, you know, of communication. We force the communication by agreement. We also have uh, uh, something in our agreement that says either spouse can trigger counseling. So a lot of times, you know, the challenge is when a couple needs to go to some marriage counseling, that one spouse doesn't want to do it. Invariably, it's one spouse or the other doesn't want to do it. Well, we have in our agreement that either spouse at any time can trigger three counseling sessions and you got to do it. And before either party is allowed to file for divorce, if things are going badly, you've got to do six counseling sessions first. And courts will enforce these these agreements there. I mean, I've seen people who have tried to, you know, just run to the courthouse and file for divorce without following. And the court will dismiss the case and say, no, your agreement says you got to go do some counseling. And so at least you give an opportunity to try to work some things out. And even if you end up getting divorced, maybe you talk about how you can do it in a conscious way and not destroy your finances by giving the money to lawyers instead. Um, or maybe you talk about how do we be good co-parents for our kids before you run out and lawyer up. So, you know, there are all kinds, you're really only limited by your own creativity. And there are all kinds of things that couples can do to, you know, protect against what they fear the most, whether that's, you know, divorce, whether that's a spouse not wanting to do counseling, whether it's, you know, not being transparent with the money. A common clause we put in is that both spouses get to be on every call or meeting with the financial advisors. So that both spouses are 
are, are in the loop. You know, I do recommend that in every couple that one person be the CFO, you know, the, the, the financial officer, you know, and, and most couples, you know, most couples, you know, when I, when I mentioned that to them, they, they look at each other because everyone knows which one of them is going to be, you know, you know who the spreadsheet person is in the, in the relationship, but just like a CFO at a company, that person would have a responsibility to come and give a, a quarterly report to the shareholders. You know, you don't just handle the information and not share it. You got a responsibility to report back. This is the state of the finances. And so whoever takes on that role as the CFO in the relationship has to also take on the responsibility to share all that information periodically with the other spouse. So that's just a few examples of the kinds of things that I recommend couples think about. Yeah. So I'm really curious about that enforcement or basically what happens when somebody isn't following the guidelines and rules that were set out in the prenup? Like what happens when you don't have your December financial meeting? Yeah, no, great, great question. And it's a common question I get. I mean, obviously, most couples are not going to run to the courthouse and file a lawsuit to enforce their agreement if their if their spouse is, you know, a couple weeks late on the December sit down meeting. But what I have found is that it's it's kind of like every other contract that you have. You don't run to the courthouse and file to evict, you know, your tenant if they're 3 days late on the rent. But there's something about putting it down in writing that this is the expectation that makes people more likely to agree to it. Uh, I mean, more likely to follow the agreement because a lot of times the problem is, you know, well, you agreed that at the beginning of our marriage that we would always do this, you know, or that we would go to counseling if, if I wanted it. And the other spouse says, I, I don't remember that or no, I didn't agree to that. Just having it in writing and being able to pull it out and show it to the other person is is usually just like with any other contract that you sign in life is usually enough to uh, encourage both people to stick by the agreement. But if they don't, and things do go south and you end up in front of a judge, well, then you've got written evidence as to what you agreed to. And you can present your evidence that the other person didn't follow it and the court can do with that what they want. I mean, the idea, you know, my goal for drafting these prenups that include a lot of clauses about how couples will handle themselves during the marriage of themselves is not to increase litigation or to make people start going to the court during the marriage to try to enforce these provisions. But to really give people, you know, a set of guidelines that's written down on paper um, that they can go back to um, if necessary and say, hey, you know, this is what we agree to do in our relationship. Um, and I think that there is a certain magic about putting it in writing and putting your ink, having it notarized, having it witnessed by, you know, a third party that gives it more weight and and makes people much more likely to to follow the spirit of the agreement whether or not they actually, you know, end up in front of a judge trying to enforce it. Yeah, it's so interesting because we have had a number of guests on the show who have kind of created their own paradigms on how to have the right conversations in relationships. So we had one guest, and I think her book was called Marriage Meetings. And then another guest, Alicia Munoz, had a book on basically like questions to ask your partner. And what I'm hearing from you is a really big reason to have a prenub is that it does force a lot of really important conversations to happen in the relationship. I think I think that's exactly right. I, I think that too many couples get married without having these critical, really important conversations and put their head in the sand. I haven't read the books that you've mentioned, but I can guess that they are encouraging the intentional sitting down and having these important conversations, even though they might be a little uncomfortable and we'd otherwise prefer just to uh, kind of put our head in the sand and hope for the best, but that, you know, the relationship at the end of the day is going to be better for having had these conversations. And if your spouse is going to be the kind of person to, you know, hide 20 grand of debt, you want to know that earlier rather than later. You know, if your spouse is going to be the kind of person to hoard all the money and and make 200 grand a year, but want to leave you with 300 a month, um, you want to know that ahead of time too. You know, is the other person going to want to leave you high and drive, your home taking care of the kids? Do they believe that you you don't deserve a share of the money that's coming into the household? That, wouldn't you like to know that? That would, be, the that would be a very good, good piece of info to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
So we went into the why, and now I'm curious about making those that conversation go well. So you mentioned there are some tried and true principles on how to make the prenup conversation go well. So what are some of those things? I know you can't tell us all of the principles, but what are some things you want to do to make the conversation, which can be vulnerable and can be challenging, go as easy as possible? Yeah, yeah. So I, I like to break apart the prenup conversation into, into three steps. There's coming into the marriage, there's before the marriage, there's during the marriage, and there's after the marriage. And I think approaching it in, in kind of these three stages makes it a little more palatable, easier to digest, right? So coming into the marriage is you sit down and you expose your finances to each other. Literally write it down on paper. What are the bank accounts that you have? What are the assets? What are the debts that you're coming into the relationship with? Um, and you can see a lot from that conversation. You know, what are your habits? Are you carrying credit card debt? Are you paying things off? Are you are you saving a lot in your retirement account? Kind of that exposure as to what brought you to this point and what are you coming into the marriage with? And then step two is what are we going to build together? Uh, what how are we going to you know have structure our kind of financial partnership here our our, our business our how are we going to merge our corporations and that's where you have the conversations as to what expenses are going to come from the joint account what expenses are going to come from our separate accounts what are the other you know things that we want to work into our budget whether it be travel or kids or a house and that part can actually be fun because you're talking about building your lives together what are the things we want to save up for you know what are our our shared financial goals and then only when you get to step three, do you talk about, you know, what I call the contingency plans. Um, and it's not just divorce. It's, you know, do we do we both have wills? Are we both going to agree to put, you know, to have a certain amount of life insurance in place? Um, you know, are we do, do we want to leave money for children? Are we leaving money for other family members? And yes, what happens if we don't work out? You know, can we agree that we're going to do it fairly? And, you know, share the money with each other rather than share it with attorneys at the end of the day. And I think if you break it down into kind of those steps, it, it can come from a more loving place and supporting the marriage itself rather than, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, <laughs> you know, I'm taking my stuff and I'm leaving, you know, and, and this doesn't even have to be a conversation that happens in one day. I mean, you know, you're talking about building the rest of your life together. Um, this is not something that's worth just, you know, one hour, you know, after after dinner. It's it's something that, you know, that can take stages. But I think breaking apart, you know, into those three steps uh, is something that I've seen work for plenty of couples that have come to my office. Yeah, I love that. I think those are really awesome steps um, and really awesome way to break it down. And I do appreciate you bringing in like the fun adventure connecting part of it because it can be very sterile and almost, you know, like lawyery, like having to think about these things and not very romantic. <laughs> right, right. Now, you know, would you mention like come together and expose your finances? You know, I was thinking about somebody who just like opens up their phone and they're like, $10 is what I have in my account right now. <laughs> That's it. You know, like there's nothing, there's no big secrets. There's also not a lot of big, big decisions to be made around like how much to split the limited money I have in my account. And I would just want to use this facetious example as a, a intro to my question about when we might not need a prenup. Um, what kind of, if couples um, who, a prenup, a prenup might be unnecessary for. Sure, sure. You know, I, so, so, you know, fair warning, I am biased, right? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the founder of prenups.com. And so when I hear someone say, you know, do we, do we not need a prenup? I hear do we not need a plan for how we're going to handle all fan finances when we get married? But certainly, I mean, if you're if you're you know if you're making minimum wage and you're living check to check, and you know the expenditure of a few you know a few grand is a different amount depending on what your financial status is, right? Um, you're not going to forego paying your rent to get a prenup if you're getting married. But I think that I think that I would err on the side of you don't need a ton of assets for it to be worthwhile. And even if you do not go hire a lawyer and get an actual, you know, prenuptial agreement done, I think it is worthwhile, no matter who you are, if you're getting married, to sit down and still have the conversations, to still go the pro through the process like you were getting a prenup. So the three steps that I talked about, what are you coming in with? How are you going to handle your finances during the marriage? And what are your contingency plans, you know, if if the worst comes to the worst in the relationship? 
um, I think it's beneficial to to any relationship. But, you know, particularly for people who are getting married later in life, uh, if you own a business, if you've got a house going in, if you've got retirement in um, uh, assets, uh, not even a lot, even if you've got 20 grand, you know, set to the side, it's worth talking about, you know, coming to an understanding as to, okay, you know, this is what we build together as joint. And, you know, what we had coming in is separate. And, you know, I don't expect you to take my 401k the same way that like, I don't expect you to pay the credit card debt that I'm bringing in. Um, and just to kind of, you know, set, you know, create a blank slate that you guys are going to build your financial relationship from the time that you join together. And if that's your intention and just, you know, come to some kind of agreement on it. And so, you know, I, I think that 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 prenups are useful tools. If you can get a legally enforceable one, if you can afford to do it. I say do it. You know, I, I think it's very, very rare that somebody uh, regrets having at least gone through the process. And, um, you know, uh, certainly if you can get a legally enforceable one uh, and get some clarity as to where you and your spouse are going to stand financially, what your plans are for the marriage. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I love that. You know, you don't necessarily need a prenup, but you does really help to have a plan <laughs> and also to have these very real conversations. And a prenup obviously offers a good framework to do those. So thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the show. I appreciate I feel like it's a free consultation. What do you call the the uh, initial meeting with a lawyer? Yeah, consultation. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate the consultation. I feel like I and all the listeners on this show have just gotten their free consultation with you. So I really appreciate you coming on. And I do have to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Yeah, I love this question. I, I wish everyone knew that love is intentional. I think that a lot of people expect that it's just supposed to happen. That there's no work associated with it, that it should just always be easy and that there's no, you know, difficulty, no difficult conversations that happen with it. And, you know, maybe it's the lawyer in me, but I don't like to leave things up to chance. And, and I, I think that love is something that is best when it's worked on. Absolutely. So thanks so much, Aaron, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Yes, I would love for your listeners to come check me out at prenups.com. It's just like it sounds, P-R-E-N-U-P-S. Uh, like I said, there's a free ebook on there for you to download and you can also set up a consultation if you wanted to meet with someone in my office right there online. Wonderful. Thank you again, Aaron, for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember that a prenup is simply a written set of rules as to how the couple is going to manage their finances during marriage, during death and divorce. And it's not just a rich person who doesn't want their spouse to take their money, but people that can use prenups include everyone, including regular working class people, because it does force you and help you to have those really important conversations that anyone should have before coming into the legal institution of marriage. So you can talk about what you want to do with your finances coming into the marriage, talk about what you're building together during the marriage, and then come up with those contingency plans. And you don't necessarily need a prenup, but it can very much help to have a plan and to have these conversations because love is intentional. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 